Our top story this morning, a double homicide in downtown Tampa. Two men were gunned down in the lobby of the Saint building. Now to our other the shooting happened during a riot Francis Castle is alive back in Tampa. You may remember Castle's the FBI agent. In certain extreme situations, the law is inadequate. In order to shame its inadequacy, it is necessary to act outside the law to pursue punishment. Frank Castle is dead. He died with his family. I leave this as a declaration of intent, so no one will be confused. Those who do evil to others are killers, rapists, psychos, sadists. You'll come to know me well. Call me... The Punisher. Welcome to the now-playing Punisher Retrospective Series. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Part of the now-playing Marvel comic movie series. When this is over, you're dead. Hosted by Jacob. I've got more guns than you do. Stuart. He's a very scary man. And Arnie. He's killing someone in way next. Join us at nowplayingpodcast.com each week for a new installment of this series. I've documented every murder that fit his profile, and I've collected intelligence on all known associates. And keep coming back as we continue to look at all the Marvel comic book movie adaptations. Welcome to the Punisher Task Force. Be warned, the guilty will be punished, and the listeners will hear detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. He's gonna fuck your life up. He already fucked my life up. Listener discretion is advised. Mr. P! Happy hunting! Today we're discussing The Punisher, starring Thomas Jane, John Travolta, Will Patton, Roy Scheider, directed by Jonathan Hensley. I'm Arnie, The Punisher of Now Playing. Indeed, I couldn't agree more. Stuart in L.A. And this is Jacob. I guess I'm going to have to be the third host on this show because God's going to sit this one out. (laughs) I love to hate that line. Oh, come on. Come on. Well, we'll get into it. We will. We'll get into it. So here it is, 2004, 15 years after the last Punisher film was made, 13 years after it was released, and by this point, to contextualize, again, Marvel is big, big business, and here they are returning to R-rated comic book films, which this is the first R-rated comic book movie since the Blade series. And a year before Lionsgate and Marvel make (laughs) Man-Thing. Well, I would like to clarify, while this does have a Lionsgate logo at the beginning, this was actually not a Lionsgate picture. It was an Artisan picture, but after it wrapped, Lionsgate bought Artisan. And so while the next film we watch is a pure Lionsgate feature, this one really could be classified as an Artisan film. Hmm. Yeah, I thought for a Lionsgate film, it was rather tame, short of the family reunion execution. (laughs) It had less of the blood and guts I would have thought was their hallmark. It's funny because if anyone's listened to our John Rambo podcast, I talk about how I feel there is a Lionsgate aesthetic. We'll be talking about that next time. But this film, yes, it does not have that Lionsgate aesthetic or their contract players. But what it does have is is Thomas Jane taking over the role of Punisher. And wearing a skull. Was that a big deal for you, Jacob? Look, 
like I said last week, that was a huge omission. It's like, let's do a Superman movie without him having an S on his chest. It's his logo. How do you do a superhero movie and not have their logo? They had to have the skull on here. They had to. They had to appease the fans from a decade ago. You say that, but when they released the teaser trailer showing Thomas Jane in the Punisher skull, fans revolted and said it looked terrible, it looked cheap, because Marvel wanted it to be just like the comic, a straight print of the skull, and everybody hated it, so they actually went back and kind of weathered the skull and gave it a bit of a look, and Marvel only relented after internet fanboys just went up in horror about how silly he looked with a giant solid skull. Well, I'm sure we'll talk about this when we get in the movie, but yeah, it doesn't help to do a bad skull. I mean, he's wearing a t-shirt. It's like there's a real Punisher that exists, and they bought a fan t-shirt, and he's wearing that in this movie. <laughs> what is the shirt supposed to look like? As the newbie, I'm curious to know what it doesn't have. The original Punisher costume is all black, but it does have a giant skull on the front, but it's Kevlar. Like, this is a t-shirt in this movie. It's a jumpsuit in the comic, is what he's trying to get around saying. It's not a jumpsuit. It's a blue but... jumpsuit in the 70s. Okay, in the 70s, <laughs> but yes, but this is not based on the 70s. This movie is based on what's considered one of the best Punisher comic books stories, and that's Welcome Back, Frank. And to contextualize this story. It came out in 2000, written by Garth Ennis, drawn by Steve Dillon, two huge players in the comic book industry, writer and artist. Around 94, 95, the Punisher started going downhill. It lost its fan base and it was done. Like this, it went from rags to riches to rags all within a decade. And so Garth Ennis comes along, not American, does not like superheroes. So welcome back, Frank reintroduces the Punisher not quite into the Marvel proper 616 universe. It was a Marvel Knight series, which means it was like a PG-16. It could be a little bit more violent than your mainstream Marvel Universe comic, but you still get characters like Daredevil popping up into it. But it was basically to reintroduce the Punisher as this hard-assed vigilante that's just going to straight up shoot you if you do something wrong. No mercy, but Ennis also brought a lot of black humor into this series. It's very funny, and you're laughing at things you shouldn't laugh at. So a lot of that Welcome Back Frank story, highly recommended, highly influential story with the Punisher, very influential on this movie. When was this published? It was 12 issues published between 2000 and 2001. So right around the time they would have started pre-production on this movie. Yes. Okay. And I do know in all the makings of, they cite that it is pretty much an adaptation of those comics with a few other things thrown in. But this is also just his origin story. Yeah. The setup of this is not dissimilar from Dolph, dare I speak his name, but Dolph actually, you know, it was cursory, you know, they kind of skip over it, but same kind of thing. Family is executed and he goes back and starts a gang warfare to avenge them. Yeah, I mean, they feel the need that they need to tell the origins of this character, which to me is kind of silly. I always talked about how simple the Punisher is. His family got killed, so he starts killing criminals. It's like hobo with a shotgun. There's a hobo and he's got a shotgun. How much explanation do you need? But they <laughs> feel the need to give us an origin story here. But we'll, we'll get into that. We'll talk about it. Well, why don't we get the whole story? Arnie, do you got a plot summary? It's hard to summarize. This one's something. <laughs> well, you know what? Just We'll get into the bug nuts element <laughs> later. Why don't you just give us the greatest hits? Frank Castle was a vet in the Gulf War. Now he works as an FBI undercover agent, and when the film opens, he's on his last gig before retiring, posing as a European gun merchant selling guns in Tampa to wannabe gangster Mickey Duca. 
With Mickey is Bobby Saint, son of local mob boss Howard Saint. The bust goes bad and Bobby is killed, so Howard Saint vows revenge. Discovering that Castle was the lead agent on the bust, Howard orders him dead, but Howard's wife Livia says it's not enough. Frank's entire family needs to be slaughtered. So it's very lucky that right after retiring, Frank took his wife and son to a family reunion in Puerto Rico. Hosted by Frank Sr., played by, hey, from Jaws, Roy Scheider. Yay! The entire Castle clan is killed by Saint's men, led by Saint's right-hand man, Quentin Glass, and Bobby Saint's twin brother, John, puts the bullet through Frank's chest before blowing up the pier. But Castle is lucky enough to fall into the water and be found by a local witch doctor. Once healed, Frank gathers his father's weapons and the skull t-shirt that was the last gift from his son, and heads back to Tampa, not for revenge, but for punishment. He moves into a rundown apartment complex with wacky neighbors the pierced Spacker Dave, the obese Bumpo, and the comely Joan, played by X-Men's Rebecca Romaine, Stamos. Frank eventually bonds with his neighbors, having dinner with them, and even saving Joan from her abusive ex-boyfriend. And the movie continues as Frank executes a very, very elaborate revenge plot against Howard Saint that I'm sure we're going to get into. The crux of it is that Howard is a money launderer for some Cubans, and Frank burns up the money and it strains Saint's relationship with the Cubans. And meanwhile, Frank is staging events to make Howard think that his wife, Livia, is sleeping with right-hand man Glass, who just so happens to be gay. <laughs> Howard does fall for it and kills both Glass and Livia. He also sends multiple assassins after Frank, all of whom fail. And in an explosive final combat, the Punisher assaults Saint's club killing all his men, including his other son, John, and reveals to Howard that his wife was never cheating on him, just before sending Howard's burning body into a lot of exploding cars. With punishment exacted, Frank is prepared to blow his own head off, but a memory of his wife has him decide instead to keep up with his mission of punishment in a sequel, as credits roll. See, that wasn't so hard. Now, there are, as with the last Punisher film, a couple different cuts of this one rolling around. There's... Two major cuts, and the second cut has a different opening, so I'm wondering which one you guys saw. And they're regular cuts, two hours, the director's cut's about 2.15, and if you see the animated comic booky intro, it's about 2.20. And I've actually seen all the different cuts. Uh, for this podcast, I sat down and watched just the theatrical cut, but I'm familiar with all of them. Because there is an entire subplot there that I will bring up as we go through about how... Saint finds out about Frank. So we will get into that. But Stuart, you said last podcast, you felt weird that we were starting a superhero movie without an origin story. Here's your origin story. You feel better? Well, <laughs> uh, the thought that occurs to me is, is it better to know nothing than to get a bad answer? And I feel like, well, yes, in principle, I like <laughs> the fact that we're going to establish who this vigilante is. And I like the fact that we're going to see him before he becomes it. I think that that helps me as a newbie, I think, as someone that really doesn't know the Punisher. And I presume a lot of people that would be going into the movie theater didn't. That's a good thing. And I like the structure of 89 Punisher. Just let's jump right into it. I've stated many times I feel his story is pretty simplistic. And guys, I kind of hate this origin story in this film. Like, if this is the origin story they're going to give us, I want to go back to Dolph. <laughs> I want to go back to Dolph. We'll, we'll get into that later. Well, they cast Thomas Jane. Now, when this movie came out, I 
not heard of Thomas Jane. I'd seen Boogie Nights, but he wasn't very memorable to me in it. This was the movie that brought him to my attention. And then after this, I just knew him as that guy who played the Punisher that one time until he had a TV series. You can't possibly be forgetting about our Spring Donation series in Deep Blue Sea, Arnie. (laughs) I said during Deep Blue Sea that I had no clue who this guy was when I watched Deep Blue Sea. And going back, I was like, oh, it's the Punisher. He's not quite a chameleon, because I don't feel like he has a lot of variants. But maybe he's just opaque. Maybe we just can't see him. I feel like Thomas Jane is sort of an everyman. And we commented that there wasn't a lot of emotional range there for him in Deep Blue Sea. But he's just kind of the studly hero type. You know, there's not much about him. I can't really get a read on Thomas Jane. I can't tell you too much, other than he's a dude. (laughs) Yeah, I had no idea who he was. I still don't really know who he is besides this movie. You know, he did have a cameo in Scott Pilgrim, which was fun. But yeah, you know, we all talked about Dolph. We had issues with Dolph. I thought Thomas Jane does a good job as the Punisher here, especially as far as fitting the 80s, 90s look of the Punisher in those comics. Like, I thought they hit him pretty spot on with Jane. Why do they always have to cast blondes and then dye their hair? (laughs) Two times in a row. Like, why do they just get a natural brunette? It just, it's bizarre. Next week. Next week. I'd rather have a dyed person who could act than someone who just fits the type physically and isn't as good. Oh, don't get me wrong. You know, Dolph was the thing that really torpedoed that last movie. Is <laughs> Yes, you said the movie was Dolphed. Yes, it was. <laughs> it was a Dolph's movie, and so I'm grateful to have anyone in the role. You know, I'll take Julianne Moore. Whatever, whoever, <laughs> whoever wants to take over the part, as controversial as the casting, I'm sure they can outdo Dolph. Thomas Jane can articulate his lines, so I actually understood what he was saying. Honestly, guys, the reason I didn't see this film in theaters was his counterpart, John Travolta. His movies are, to me, what garlic is to vampires. I stay the hell away. Well, you know, that's a rush to judgment. I know what impulse you're following, but I'm going to defend John Travolta. I think that he can be very charming. I think he has some tremendous credits to his name. I think he can be perfect in the right vehicle. To me, he is another Nicolas Cage. He is perfect in the right vehicle, and he is toxic when he is allowed to go too far. And this is finding him in his career post-Battlefield Earth and Swordfish. So, yeah, we're not getting Travolta at his peak. Don't get me wrong, I love Get Shorty. I love Grease. I actually love Pulp Fiction and think he's great in those things. But, old dogs, be cool. I could go on and on. I'm right there with you, Arnie. I did not see this in theaters, and it was because of Travolta. I was just like, a Punisher film with Travolta? Really? You know what's weird to me is that when you guys said he was in the movie, I instantly assumed he was the Punisher. It didn't occur to me he was going to be the bad guy. What's weird to me here is that he's cast as the villain, and I don't think of Travolta as really doing that well. Maybe I just haven't seen the movies that have shown him to have that side. You've never seen Face Off? No, I actually never have. Come on, Nicolas Cage and Travolta, (laughs) you think I could sit through that? Well, there's Face Off, there's Broken Arrow, which yeah, also nope. had Samantha Mathis, who's in this film. Uh-uh. There's Swordfish. I've seen all of them. This is why I didn't go to theaters for The Punisher. <laughs> Swordfish and Battlefield Earth I saw, and I would say that those are proof positive why you don't cast Travolta as a villain. Come on, the guy's a goofball. He's Tony Monero to me. Saturday Night Fever, always. Welcome back, Cotter. There's always just something shy and goofy and sweet about John Travolta. If you try to make that menacing... 
It's going to blow up in your face. Well, we'll see if it did here. I want to start going through this. I do want to comment on the Marvel logo. They shoot it this time. We always talk about the Marvel logo. I thought that was kind of a nice touch. In the director's cut, there is an animated opening of five minutes. Now, if you listen to the commentaries, it's like hearing the Bernie Madoff story about how this guy, the director, used to have money and now he doesn't. Dude, this is the worst commentary. Like, we we don't usually comment (laughs) on commentaries, but I remember watching this. I'm like, what a pretentious ass. Like, worst commentary track ever. Well, it's his directorial debut, but he found out he was going to be directing an action film and assumed he'd be given probably 60 million, at least 30. And when he found out his budget was 15, his entire commentary is saying, well, we had to cut this. Well, we had to cut this. Well, we had to cut this. We didn't have much money. And so in his director's cut, they gave us an animatic and hired a comic book artist to basically make a motion comic of five minutes of the Punisher in Kuwait during his army days. Oh, I got to say, at least it was Tim Bradstreet who did covers for years for Punisher. And the guy, he does a photo realistic, uses a lot of Photoshop. So I'm willing to give it that. At least it's Tim Bradstreet. So what are we learning in this opening? That he was a badass in the war? That it updates the Vietnam War? I remember you saying that he was a Vietnam vet the last time. Obviously, when this is coming out in 2004, that wouldn't play unless you made him Frank Castle really, really old. So <laughs> yeah, it would, it would have to be what? The first Iraq War? I suppose Travolta could play him if he was the Vietnam vet. And look, they've done that in the comics. He's like 60 pushing 70 right now. <laughs> Still a Vietnam vet. Still killing people. You get Clint Eastwood, it would have worked. Then you'd have to dye the hair again, though, Stuart. We know how you feel about that. (laughs) I think Eastwood would have fit in this film. But in this opening scene, he's in Iraq with his troop. And yes, he is a badass because his troop comes under fire and he single-handedly goes in, saves their ass, kills several of the enemy, captures two of them. But then his major is going to execute the two because they ambushed them and killed several of their people. And Frank is like, no, then we're no better than they are. We should take them prisoner. So it's setting up a dichotomy showing how Frank has changed. And then one of the troops grabs the major's grenade and blows everybody up. And Frank is only saved by his partner, Weeks, who would later be his FBI partner. And just like Daredevil, there's an entire subplot that is gone. Instead of Coolio, we have Weeks. Well, it sounds kind of weeks to me. <laughs> what, what are we learning from all of this? That's what I'm trying to figure out. I don't know what this added. Okay. <laughs> well, it would have added a lot to the budget, and I understand that John Hensley is a screenwriter of big action movies, so it probably was a shock to him. You know, he penned Armageddon and Die Hard 3 and Val Kilmer's Unfortunate The Saint. He even wrote next, Jacob. (laughs) Maybe that explains some of these plot twists. But, you know, I think that it probably was a sticker shock to him to know that he wasn't going to be able to play around in a boatload of money and that... Really, I feel like this movie is begging for the sensibilities of a B-movie director. It really seems indebted to Quentin Tarantino or Robert Rodriguez. Truly, this whole movie is an homage to what they had been doing the past decade. And I gotta say, it's because of these budget cuts that the Punisher, who is there to clean up New York, is now on the streets of Tampa? He is like, in Tampa. Is he not from Florida? No, he's a, he's a New Yorker. <laughs> Isn't he nibbling on sponge cake watching the sun bake? No, with a parrot on his shoulder? This is ridiculous. Stuart, you are already dismissing this movie 
Because it takes place in Tampa? It's ridiculous <laughs> to take place in Tampa? I'm the fanboy. That's my job, Stuart. Yeah. <laughs> no, I actually like Tampa. I actually like all the clothes. It was very Miami Vice. It was very slick and Michael Mann. Yeah, we're back to Will Graham in Manhunter here. Yeah, it definitely had that vibe to it. I found it very odd, and I found it striking. It certainly characterized and colorized the whole movie. It's an unusual location because, yeah, I had been thinking after the last movie, they were trying to capture a really dank, gritty sensibility. And here, well, like I said, I I feel like we're three bullets away from Margaritaville. I have no problem with this setting. Let me just say that, to me, a setting is a setting. It takes place in Tampa. I did like it because it's unusual. I used to live right outside of Tampa, so I really went with it. And especially given that our primary villain, Saint, is a money launderer for Cubans, the locale made a lot of sense. Look, after the initial shock, I'm fine with it. The Punisher travels. He's goes all over the place to kill people. The Tampa location doesn't detract with what they do with this movie. There's some other locations they choose that I got problems with, but after the initial shock, I'm willing to go with it. It's fine. It's not something that destroys the character for me. It doesn't change the initial characteristics of the Punisher. And we start off with Frank undercover as a blonde FBI agent. You telling me that was his real hair color, Stuart? Because I thought that was just a bad wig. No, it's he's Bond in every other movie I've ever seen. And he's essentially, I think, still in the same getup from his last movie. He did an indie movie about a South African gangster called Stander that I think that this was all an homage to, sort of, maybe, vaguely. <laughs> I'm not, like I say, very familiar with Thomas Jane. I know that somebody there is a cop undercover. But is it the guy in the bad wig or the guy in the bad fake mustache? But it does turn out, yes, I finally know Thomas Jane well enough. He's the FBI agent as the gun seller. I think they're counting on that. I mean, when he's the first one put down by bullets, they're trying to create the sense that maybe the good guys are riding in here and we're about to be introduced to our hero. We're not supposed to expect that he sits up out of his body bag and is heading into his retirement party. It's a fake out. I like this setup. I like the introduction of... Mickey Duca, the actor is a guy I know from Ocean's Eleven, Eddie Jimison, who I probably wouldn't remember from Ocean's Eleven, but both he and Thomas Jane are now stars in Hung, so I guess they must have become friends on here and one got the other a job. I like the energy he brings. I thought he was one of the funnier parts in Ocean's Eleven. But yeah, he sits up, we get to see his retirement party. This is one of the few scenes that survives with Weeks in it, who Frank, in the regular cut, has a very weird dialogue with about how he says, we beat the spread, which is supposed to foreshadow Weeks has a gambling problem. Mm. Because Mickey tells Howard Saint that the guy who set up Bobby is dead. It's Weeks who sells out because Weeks steals $200,000 from an evidence locker, and loses it at the casino conveniently owned by the Cubans who Saint launders money for. And so it's Weeks who gives up to Saint that Frank Castle was undercover and still alive. Oh, okay. Now, Stuart, were you wondering how Saint gets the information that it was Castle? Because the first time I saw this was the original cut, and I don't feel like it added anything. It's totally unnecessary. John Travolta is the big heavy dude. He has a network of badasses that can find out anything that he wants, and they bring him a dossier that blows everything. I didn't think that was weird at all. I thought it was weird when it later turns up on Fox News and they blow his whole cover on national television. (laughs) But here, I'm like, no, that's fine. This is the world that we're watching. This is the evil underlord that has access to all. John Travolta is kingpin. 
I'm the same way. I just thought he had people who knew people. It did not strike me as odd. This entire excised plot could stay excised. I'm not going to be very kind to John Travolta in his performance in this movie, but I have to preface it all by saying I feel so bad that one of his introductory scenes here is laying to rest his dead son, given that that's probably the last time that I've even seen him is... The death of his own. <laughs> You're laughing. Oh. <laughs> I did not put that together. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, given the last time that we seen him, he was burying Jet and really looking miserable on the on the talk show circuit, talking about it. It, it gave me a creep out factor when he was there, you know, saying I used to dress you and all that. With that, I felt really bad. I got to say, it was a hell of a meta way to begin this movie, and it actually had me a little bit more on Howard's side than maybe I should have been. Well. I didn't even think about Jet, but that is something that I did think was, it, how bad of a guy is he? Is he really even the evil one? Because when we're introduced to him, he's mourning his dead son. Isn't that something that people could, if not relate to, at least empathize with, even if he is a mobster? I'll even take it a step further. They depict Frank as a horrible father. He's got this son that he's estranged from. Dad, why do we have to move again? He's like, I'll, I'll be able to tell you someday. Like, they really flip this around where Frank's the bad dad, and then you have Saint here, who's this evil mobster, but he's a really loving father and a family man. His wife says, hey, kill all the castles, and he's like, do it. It's my wife. I love her. You got to do whatever she says. You, you know, they really flip it around here. There's no moral ambiguity in this movie. Keep in mind, it was made in the George W. Bush era where there's freedom fighters and evildoers, and this is characterized in the same way. The good guy is the one that we tell you it is. The bad guy that's getting punishment is the one that we tell you deserves to get it. I mean, yeah. I disagree because I had the same thought, but this came out in 2004, the same year as Fahrenheit 911. I think that this is a subversion of the Bush tactic. And I think we are supposed to find Howard Saint to be somewhat sympathetic. I think that the Punisher, yes, is Bush-era diplomacy. But when you see that the person who the Punisher is out to kill and just demolish in every regard is a grieving father, then all of a sudden it humanizes the faceless enemy under the Bush administration. Wow. <laughs> Am I to extrapolate from that that you actually find John Travolta compelling and sympathetic here? Yes. Well, I'm not going to go as far as your political analysis, Arnie, but <laughs> I agree. I don't feel that Travolta is the big evil villain that they probably want the mainstream moviegoer to think he is. Or that we would expect him to be. I said before, most Punisher comics, it's four or five issues setting up how horrible these villains are. So when you get to that last issue in the storyline, you just can't wait till the Punisher takes them all out with a machine gun. They don't go that route here. This is, I think, much less black and white than you would expect with a Punisher story. Yeah, this guy is not a rapist. He's not even really a murderer. He's a money launderer. He is a white-collar criminal. Well, I think that it's interesting that you're saying that this is the intention of the story to portray this as morally ambiguous. I think this seems more like flattery for John Travolta because he probably doesn't play uber bad guys that often. He probably had some say in how his character would be portrayed. I would guess that John Travolta would insist on these character points. Stuart, I... I don't want to recommend Face Off, but I think Travolta shows in Face Off that he could be a real slimy bad guy. Very different than he plays it here. Doesn't he play both in that movie? He does. <laughs> he does play both, but the majority of the film, he is this slimy villain. 
and he does it very well. You hate that guy in the movie. I hated him in Battlefield Earth. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I kind of love him in that, too, though. One day we're going to do that one. But I think that there has to be some intent here that makes him sympathetic. It can't be an accident. And I do feel bad for him. And I think, truly, <laughs> the villain is his wife, Livia. I mean, when we first see her in the theatrical cut... She pulls up that veil. She's Darth Vader. She's walking around until the unveiling with this big black veil looks like a helmet. But then when they pull it up, there's that crescendo of evil music, you know? It's like, uh uh-oh. And she's the one who says, kill them all. Howard, he's grieving. He's fine with just eye for eye equal justice. Livia, the female, you're Cheney, if you will, says no. (laughs) You can't just kill Frank kill the whole family if she hadn't said that we wouldn't have a movie would we no it's true they definitely pinned it on her as the one that decides to execute the whole family but are you meaning to imply that if they came and just took out frank that frank wouldn't go on the path that he goes on well if they just shot frank we wouldn't have a movie he's he's got to lose some family members whether it's by crossfire or purposeful intent because they were ordered to kill his family there's got to be that loss to motivate him well, let's get to it. Let's get to that scene. I, I feel like that's uh, one I want to discuss. All right. His family is all introduced. There was Samantha Mathis. I mentioned her earlier. I love this actress. I don't know if I, any of you know her. I have followed her career since she co-starred with Christian Slater in Pump Up the Volume, and she caught my eye in that film, and I make it a point to see Samantha Mathis things. Oh, Okay. What else has she done? (laughs) (laughs) She was my reason for seeing Broken Arrow, her reunion with Christian Slater. Okay. Super Mario Brothers, she played the princess. (laughs) Just stop. Just stop. (laughs) All right. Uh, The thing called love was where I kind of jumped off the boat, but I was so happy to see her working again. IMDb tells me she's worked, but I hadn't seen her in almost a decade. Yeah, but this is sort of like, this is where Mary Louise Parker role in Red Dragon. This is like, you're famous enough to get this bit part where we're going to just use you in the background as the wife. It's it's not much of a role here. She basically exists to die and become a saint, right? (laughs) No, the saints are the evil people. (laughs) Yes. And because I watched The Last Dolph Punisher, I know the fate that's going to happen here. Maybe I tried to put on a hat and say, if I hadn't seen that, would I think that she's going to live? But Truly, all these scenes where they're cuddling on the beach and he's like, I'm going to make it right for you and I'm finally going to make my family a priority. I'm just like, dead, dead, (laughs) dead meat, dead, it's over. This is just setting up the tragedy. We know, right? We don't know that it's probably going to be so brutal. I don't think I was prepared for the fact that, you know, grandma with the margarita was going to get a bullet. But (laughs) The first bullet. Yeah. I love that, and I hate that. I I am of two minds about so much in this movie. It is so ridiculous that I think I've read in the comic they killed his wife and two children, right? Yes. And in that was what it was in the first movie. Here he has a wife and one child, and I knew they were dead. Why not make her pregnant, too, with how far <laughs> they take this? But they kill... Everyone, his second cousin once removed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Nephews that probably don't even know his name and probably didn't even want to come. They're dead. Going back to showing Frank with his wife, I don't like how much of a family man he is in this movie. It just rubs me the wrong way that it sets this movie up where it's going to have to prove how you go from this loving, caring father 
to this emotionless, soulless murderer that's willing to torture and, and just destroy everything. Frank, as depicted in the comics, was always kind of emotionally removed from his family. That, again, he was a metaphor of what war does to the psyche, what it does to people, that it, he had a hard time relating with his family. So uh, it, it kind of just rubs me, maybe because it's just not done well in this film. You know, I actually dislike what you just told me the comics do, and I think I like this better, because if he was distant from his family, then why would he care as much to be driven so crazy when something happened to them? You've got to find somebody who his family is his world to follow them on that journey, you know? I'm thinking back to Dustin Hoffman and Straw Dogs type of thing when you get pushed too far. So the fact that he is a family man here works for me a lot. Well, this is a movie in which the wives keep nagging the men <laughs> to go kill things. I mean, that's kind of the way it's set up. She's serving Frank's mission as much as Livia is with Howard Saint's vengeance. I think it's a movie that advocates that women can be really shrews and that men are just doting snipers. I don't know. <laughs> well, she's doing it from the grave. I mean, I really think it's his subconscious doing it, not really the woman. She wants him to retire and spend time with her, not out busting drug lords. What bugs me about this as an origin story is how heavy-handed all the exposition is. You know, the son comes in with this bad t-shirt with a skull it wards off evil spirits and the frank's father brings him in while they're sipping their alcohol hey let me show you these guns we just happened to have displayed in the living room in a glass <laughs> case and i modified these like you, you know what i had flashbacks to was our wolverine podcast where Stuart was talking about the old people here's my son's bike and here's his jacket we have to die now <laughs> it was so much a callback to that sort of just wrote, we need to introduce everything that you're going to use to avenge us, and now that you have them, we can safely die. You know, like, that's definitely what they're here to do. And why bring back Roy Scheider, the man, the 70s dude, you know... It, 30 years ago, they would have made him the Punisher, and he would have just fit into that gritty New York world you're talking about that he sort of exists in. It was really cool to see him cast here as Frank Sr., but they bring him back to show off his gun collection and then get it. I don't even think... He might have gotten off one good shot. He might have taken out one dude, but I, I don't think he did much. He saved Frank's life yeah. by stabbing the guy in the back, and he... That's what it was. Yeah, I knew that he had done one feeble little thing. But come on, Roy Scheider deserves better than this. He does, but I do think they were going for this kind of 70s type of vibe, and so having him there added that cred. I just feel like a lot of this is Tarantino-ish. You know, Tarantino would have found something cool to do with resuscitating Roy Scheider's career and would have cast him here. He probably would have cast him as the Punisher, quite frankly, and he would have made it work. He would have been a better saint if you wanted saint to actually be evil. Yeah, I feel like there are so many things here where I feel like they're trying to do the 70s as they were seen through the Tarantino lens in the 90s. Like, it's a, it's a redo of a retro, but I feel like not in capable hands here. The attempts at doing a low-budget, gritty little thing, much more successful in the Dolph version. I can't believe I'm saying this, <laughs> but I actually feel like the last movie did it better than this one. I can't believe you're saying that either, because <laughs> I was thinking about the Dolph version when I watched this and went, wow, an action scene that's exciting! I wish the last film had that, because I love the shootout. I am really gripped by it. I think it's some fun action. Wait, 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 wait. 
You don't mean the word fun. I want you to find another word. These are people being massacred. Innocent lot. But the way it's shot, it's kinetic. And I'm thinking about how, like, the two Franks are trapped in the house and the guy's out there and they blow up the propane tank. This kind of excitement, adrenalizing. And I said last podcast, I don't like it when people shoot at each other and there's no reason. But here, the way it's filmed and the fact that we've had a half an hour with these characters to get to know them pulls me in to this action. And this becomes the type of action film I like. And I really like the action and the car chase that follows. The car chase, I'll give you. I love the car chase. The action, yes. Is it better than Dolph Punisher? Yes. There's more going on. I'll agree with you there. But I love the car chase here. And Stuart, talking about, you know, trying to remind us of other movies, once the wife and son get run down like that's almost scene for scene out of mad max like one of my favorite trilogies there hope we get to do a retro on that someday but like the way she looks over her shoulder all we need is the little baby booty rolling down the street it's just totally stolen from mad max oh damn because here was something i was going to compliment the movie on i'm a, if we do mad max i'm the newbie i actually thought like this stretch, when she gets in the vehicle that's pulling the speedboat, and they're chasing her, and the boat knocks some of the dudes back that are, are shooting at them, and their truck overturns, and they have to run to the dock. I thought all of that was actually, hey, this is kind of working, and I felt really bad when Frank finds their bodies. You know, we don't know what happens in the reveal that they're just laying there. I thought all of this was very effective. I thought this may be the best stretch in the whole movie. You're telling me it's a theft? It's not an outright theft. When she gets run down, it's a theft. Like, the shots are almost identical. But the whole chase scene isn't a theft. But it's a great chase scene. But yeah, when she gets run down, that's... Watch Mad Max. It's straight out of there. Well, yeah, that is. It, it just, and it's not just that it's a wife and child get run down. It's the way it's shot, the angle, everything. No, I thought it worked for me. Like I said, I felt like this was a better telling of the family being executed than what Dolph did. I was appreciating. And then we have this weird moment where they come back and shoot Frank point blank a couple times and then light the dock on fire and he's blown into the water and I'm like, I'm confused. Why can't they just put a bullet in the head? I had a flashback to Dark Man. <laughs> is he supernatural? In this movie, he is. No, but he does have a shirt that wars off spirits. Yeah, yeah because I, he's saved by a witch doctor. Oh, I hate this. And there's no way that he could have lived from those injuries. Just none. We accept that, right? I mean, he was shot maybe six times. In, in the chest. Like, barrel to the chest. And then he's blown into the water, and I presumed that what they were telling me, that this was like the crow. Hey, 50 Cent has been shot nine times, and he's still alive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, guys, I hate this. I hate that there's this supernatural voodoo witch doctor that's kept Frank alive so he could go on this mission. Like, it's so anti-what the Punisher is, this gritty grindhouse person that's totally out of place in a superhero world now he's a superhero somewhat he's a zombie yeah i felt like he was a zombie and i just wanted to clarify that this is a conceit of this movie probably because they're in homage of the crow and brandon lee having listened to all the makings of and things the crow was not on their mind at all this is no homage to the crow they may not have <laughs> copped to it but i was getting a big crow vibe off of this and I guarantee you, he's not dead. He's quite obviously a living person because he's going to kill himself. This whole movie ceases to work if you believe he's a resurrected ghost. It only works if you believe he was near dead, but a witch doctor saved him and he's still alive. Quite literally, the magical black man comes in and saves the day. 
Oh, I hate it. It's slightly better than in Halloween 5 when Michael Myers spends a year being revived by a hermit with a parrot. (laughs) Well, anyway, you're right. The rest of this movie does not work if you accept it on this premise. I am going to go with that, Arnie. I agree with you. This is where anything that I was holding on to this movie, my hopes for this movie being a better version of the Dolph Grindhouse thing, reached their peak. After this moment, I feel like this movie really goes off into a weird direction. I couldn't have anticipated. <laughs> I, I gotta say, Frick shows up with the voodoo witch doctor. He's got his beard and the crutch. He goes into his old Puerto Rican vacation home, and everything's like bagged up like they're gonna move it. I'm wondering, who's the next of kin? Weren't they all just murdered? Like, and the guns are just still sitting there? This is a crime scene, and there's just fire? Like... <laughs> I hate this. And the shirt's on the beach. I'm really wondering how much time has passed. He just walks out. Oh, hey, this shirt, it's sitting here in the sand. I'll put it on and make it my trademark. Yeah, this scene, it rides the line between cool and so silly it's stupid. Well, yeah, we are on that line, and they're about to cross it. I gotta say, though, when he gives the line, you know, via con Dios, go with God. God's gonna sit this one out. Now I'm kind of loving it. Like, I don't know where this is going to go, but I kind of love that line. Like, you guys laughed at it. Like, that seems like a Punisher thing to say to me. (laughs) And I really feel it's this meta moment. You know, I complained about this pulpy, existential, wondering about God and vengeance with Dolph. Like, I got to feel like that's some commentary on all this God pondering that Dolph Punisher did. And no, we're going to get rid of that. This is a different Punisher now. Oh, I hadn't thought about that. So, okay, the dialogue with God's out of it. I see. Well, that was one of the better parts of the last movie, I thought. (laughs) I think it's supposed to be this badass line. The way that it's delivered, it's just, oh, God, I find it funny, but yet I also, again, think it's really cool. I love the line, but it's, no, it's not a great line, (laughs) you know? We can agree the movie feels really different after that moment. After this scene and after that moment, I have whiplash. I mean, I feel like I could sue and win for (laughs) what damage has happened to me when this movie immediately yanks us in an entirely new direction. I like the new direction it's going to go in because I hated the Puerto Rico stuff. Like, the action and the car chase were cool, but I hated the storytelling, what they were doing with the witch doctor and just the way they introduced the shirt and all that. Like, I hate that stuff. So now, maybe if they're going to go with that cheesy, campy, B-movie feel, I could go with it. But how does a man who's presumed to be dead get from Puerto Rico to Tampa with a shitload of guns? He's dead. (laughs) It's not like you can drive it. I'm going to give this this conceit. I'm going to then ask that he ends up going to a rundown apartment to live with a waitress, a fat Italian cook, and someone with lip rings who plays too much Xbox. Stuart, none of what we've said before was in Welcome Back, Frank. This is in Welcome Back, Frank. No! Yes, when I said it's full of, like, this black humor, this is where it comes in. Like, now, the characters are played a little bit different. They're not quite the cohesive unit that they are in this movie. Joan isn't a supermodel. She doesn't <laughs> quite have those looks. Dave's pretty much the same, and Bumpo, he's an older guy. He's always having coronaries, and they're making these jokes about how they have to knock the walls out of this dilapidated apartment building so the ambulance can get him out of the building to take him to the hospital. But this is all from the comic. This isn't play like black humor to me. This plays like very conventional humor you would 
find on a sitcom on NBC Thursday nights. Like, this felt like he is now living in primetime TV. And I was weirded out that they would even go here. That is the black humor is that you have a character like the Punisher and you're going to try to do this sitcom-y thing with him. Like, just the juxtaposition between what a sitcom is and what this murderous vigilante is, they don't go together. And, and that's why it can work. I'll, I'll say can work. <laughs> it definitely works in the comic okay. for me. This film, it plays it a little bit different. You know, we started this movie with two different families, Frank's family and Saint's family, and now here's this other family trying to come together. It family ties Punisher style. It definitely has that vibe. It does, but it's, again, I completely understand Stewart's whiplash because the first time I saw this, I was weirded out. And I want to know, what is Rebecca Romaine doing here? I know, right? Like, <laughs> like last time we saw her, it was X2, and she was powerful and sleek and beautiful, and we thought, wow, this woman needs her own star vehicle, right? And now she's given this dumpy waitress role where she does nothing but attract bad men, and she doesn't even get laid in this movie. Like, she doesn't even fulfill the girlfriend role. She literally does nothing. Yeah, I honestly didn't realize until this watching it was her, because I just never would have thought that she would do this role. It is a slightly bigger role than Samantha Mathis's. <laughs> and so inappropriate. Like, she's hitting on him. She knows his story. It's made the news and all of that. Like, yeah, I know that your whole family tree was just chopped down five months ago. But hey, do you want to go back to my room and, you know, bonk a bonk? <laughs> That's what I find, like, funny about. Like, it's so inappropriate. <laughs> it is inappropriate. And I like that. I like that it doesn't go the standard route. I mean, in the comic, there's this great scene where she brings him cookies, and the Punisher's there, like, has this whole inner monologue whether he should accept these cookies from this woman. Like, it's just such a strange image to have this guy that runs around with a skull shirt and a machine gun and this woman trying to woo him with homemade cooking. Yeah, see, I'm like, if my family being executed wasn't motive enough, being offered <laughs> ice Florentine would be enough. I'd pick up the gun. Like, I now understand why Frank <laughs> wants to kill everyone because if they're trying to replace my real biological family with this, yeah, ABC family, I'm appalled and irate. But I do get enjoyment out of this. I do find it very funny. I think that the three actors they cast are really good. I like watching them in that sitcom-y kind of way. And yeah, when Grandma was getting a bullet, I didn't realize I was about to change channels to a sitcom, but <laughs> I kind of like the sitcom I'm watching. I'm surprised, Stuart, that you don't like this after arguing, like, Texas Chainsaw Massacre's this commentary on the nuclear family. Like, you like these non-conventional, these skewerings of the typical family, and you don't get more atypical than, like, a murderous vigilante, this woman, an obese guy, and this pierced dude. I mean, yeah, you really could extrapolate it as Frank is the father, and Joan is the mother. I did extrapolate it. That's in my notes. I mean, that's how it's played. Dave is, like, the older son, the teenage son with all the piercings, and Bumpo, he's very childlike he's like the little kid running around yeah why are we doing that <laughs> someone remind me how this relates to the idea of someone getting punishment and or vengeance for the death of his loved ones 
I would have guessed watching this that this was something forced upon the movie by studio execs who didn't get the comic and felt like we need something that people are going to relate to. It does not play as satire, does not play as subversive to me. It feels like they've emasculated Charles Bronson. <laughs> like, I thought I was here to see Dirty Harry clean up the streets, and this, I'm dumbfounded. I literally can't believe that you guys don't see this as a betrayal. I don't, because I think after seeing Grandma take the bullet, we need a breather. And this isn't a bad one. It's a really bad one. Seeing these people reacting to Frank, I kind of like it. Now, we get all these scenes of Frank fixing up his car, and so it's kind of funny that we're now seeing Frank from the outside, but it gives us a perspective. It kind of grounds this. And I also like that the next scene, when Frank's finally taking action, instead of just killing people, no, he's going after Mickey with a popsicle. Yeah. <laughs> um, I agree with you until the part where you said you liked that. I mean, again, I am set up to think that this is going to be a brutal, tough, Tarantino-ish, splatter-fest, grindhouse action thing. A man's whole lineage is wiped clean. <laughs> He's a war veteran. And his mentality, and he, and the first guy that he does... He tricks him into thinking he's burning him with a welding torch, but he's only wielding a popsicle and frying a steak? This is a man who thinks it's not Dolph Punisher where he's going to walk in there and stand and puff out his cheeks and pull the trigger on a gun. This is a man, it, it's a slow, meticulous plan. I mean, he's not going to go for revenge right away. It's going to be a slow build. He wants to completely take apart the Saint family as the Saint family took apart his. And it is the most exacting, intricate plan oh, yes. <laughs> revenge. It's honestly something that I would think the Demericos would do on Days of Our Lives. It is very soap operatic. Oh, tell a novella all over on this thing. Yeah, I definitely felt that. It's the most elaborate revenge plot ever. It doesn't feel like someone working out of anger. It feels like someone that doesn't know how to fight. Someone that doesn't want to hurt anybody coming up with ways that he could rustle some feathers. I mean, really, like interrupting someone's golf game by putting a tombstone on the 18th hole? Like <laughs> I gotta say, that is stupid. Like, I still don't understand why he announces his comeback. No, not only does that, he does press in the next scene. <laughs> and now everyone knows he's alive. And then they leave him alone? Like, no reporters, nothing, no follow-up? Well, they no can't find him. He's in a dilapidated apartment building. Oh, okay, so nobody tracked him after he walked up to the police and all the cameras and said, yeah, I'm back and alive. Well, again, that scene where he walks up to the cameras, I don't know why that was in the theatrical cut. That's supposed to be his reuniting with Weeks, who was in that scene. Again, if you follow this whole other subplot that pops up, unfortunately, throughout the rest of the movie, the scene fits, but I don't know why that scene was in here. But the tombstone I get, it's, you think you've killed me, I'm coming for you, it's the psychological warfare. But you do that right before you go after him, like, you plot all this stuff first, and then right before you storm the nightclub, that's when you toss the tombstone at him. But it is right before, because he does the tombstone, and theoretically the same day he goes to the press, and then he breaks into that building where they're laundering all the money, and pours it out the window. And that was, again, some comedy. I mean, he hits the guy in the face with a frying pan. I'm thinking Freddy's dead type humor here. Which is a way of saying that it's not very funny. 
it's so stupid, but yet I'm finding it amusing in a Three Stooges kind of way. I still don't know if I'm along for the ride, but I'm enjoying it. Wow. See, I just, I can't believe it. My entire experience watching this entire movie, I am stunned that this is the revenge plot. I just, I'm baffled. I gotta say, the things like the frying pans, maybe it's because I'm familiar with the source material. Like, in the source material, the, the Punisher is being chased by some mobsters through a zoo. The Punisher doesn't have any guns. They end up in a polar bear exhibit. And, like, the polar bears are sleeping, so the Punisher walks up to him and punches them, and then jumps out of the exhibit. The polar bears wake up and attack the mobsters. Like, there is that absurdity, almost cartoon, like, we're watching Bugs Bunny in real life going after Elmer Fudd. And that's what I like. I get that vibe off of this. Okay. Well, I clearly didn't understand that this was in the spirit of the character. It wasn't what I was prepared to watch. This is something I would expect out of Macaulay Culkin (laughs) in Home Alone 5. But all right. It's a bit more violent than that. What I was shocked by is on his way out, they have a very old-fashioned Western standoff where he, like, pulls back and it's a quick-draw contest. You mentioned the 70s. I'm confused as to what they're going after in this film tonally. Clint Eastwood, Man With No Name trilogy, like, like that's totally what that's going for. That's what that's going for, but it's the first time in this whole movie I've gotten that. Oh, with the opening song over the credits, it it had a very Western feel to it. I just thought that was any generic superhero theme, but... No, it's got a Leone vibe to those opening credits in this moment. I, I definitely get it. Again, they're making homages to cool vigilante flicks from the 60s and 70s, but then I'm watching this movie and I'm seeing the plot and I'm like, none of this echoes those movies. Like, you do allusions to them, but the plot itself is farcical. It feels like a bad joke. I want to understand, as you guys are watching this, you aren't in any way adrenalized, right? You're laughing. Right? I was adrenalized when the family was being killed. Sure. And now, yes, I am laughing. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about from any point after that. Yeah, beginning, tragic, horrible. It's awful what happened to his family. Now, it's like a yuck fest. See, and I like how it keeps shifting those tones, that it's making these horrific acts of violence funny, because we're not supposed to laugh at that stuff. Like, I talked about in Rambo, with the last Rambo movie, like, it was a joyless movie. I felt really weird saying... I want to have more fun while Rambo mows down all these people. But, like, maybe that's what I enjoy when I go into a grindhouse, B-action movie type flick, is I don't mind the one-liners, the bad puns, the fun, the excessive gore. That's what I like in these kind of movies. I Then I think it was a real mistake to murder families. I think it was a real mistake to run over a child. I feel like if that was this crazy movie, then you needed to make it just that they shot Frank. Like, the fact that we watch dead children and old people, I think that it makes it really impossible to see vengeance through firing pans and popsicles. See, I disagree. I brought up Hobo with a Shotgun, and there's a scene in there where they fry children alive. And that's a movie that just pushes the boundary with violence and trying to make it funny, make it absurd. Right, but they didn't make the child death absurd. They made it a tragic moment. You're supposed to feel really, really terrible for him when he's holding his dead family in his arms. If the movie had been consistently dark humor, I could go with anything that they've done. But they were telling me for the first 40 minutes that this was going to be some kind of Death Wish movie. And now they're telling me Home Alone 5. I won't disagree with you. The tone is uneven in this film. They never get that balance right, but I dislike the first 40 minutes of this film so much, I was glad to move on from that and go for a different kind of film. I mean, Stuart, come on. When Harry Heck walks into the diner and serenades the Punisher, I love that scene. The best guy they could get from Memphis. 
and it's a country singer with a tear tattoo who's singing some kind of Johnny Cash-ish threat about, <laughs> in time, I'm, you're going to be mine. It's complete Robert Rodriguez moment. I don't know what else to say. It's Del Mariachi, right? It does feel that way, yeah. But I like the song. I like how just weird it is that, like, the Punisher sitting at the diner with the people, and this guy just comes in, sits down, and sings a song, and nobody, like, does anything about it. Would you, like, if this guy came in and started singing to you, like, it would scare you, it would freak you out. That's what I love. We talk about the psychology of this, like some guy serenading you, threatening to kill you. I love this scene. I love the song, and I actually do love the mood of the scene. Yeah, I'm going with it, actually. And then you go into that car chase and the shootout. Like, I, I think it's a great scene. I would almost agree with you if something had happened within the course of that scene. But yes, the fact that they butt this up with a car chase in which we spent all that time him making the Cobra car... And then it's just totally wrecked. I'm like, I don't think that these people know what they're doing making this film. It feels incompetent. From scene to scene, the shifts in tone, the willy-nilly ways things happen. The fact that they apparently know where he lives, had to outsource to Memphis to send in the country singer to do a car chase. This is a mess of a movie. This is one of the worst Marvel movies I've seen. And I've oh, seen Stuart. some pretty bad oh, ones. No, no, Please. no, no. There's nothing in Blade that approaches. Oh, I want to apologize. Apologize now. I want to apologize to Blade. I, I'm I'm thinking I might need to send the car to Daredevil. <laughs> oh. I didn't say I put the stamp on it yet. I'm just saying I've got my pen ready. As someone new to this, this is a train wreck, right? This is all over the map. This is incompetent and not what I was promised in 40 minutes of the opening that it would now be this sloppy, deranged. I mean, it feels like Cobra or Commando or one of those crazy 80s movies. No, come on. Those ones take themselves seriously. That's what I like about this. It doesn't take itself seriously. It does, though, Jacob. At times, it's trying to have it both ways. It really is. But, Stuart, I feel like I cannot understand why you're saying this is incompetent. This is competently made. It's a little bit scattershot in terms of plotting, but it's an exciting car chase. I really thought, though, Frank was building the Punisher Mobile, and instead it's wrecked because he just can't see when he puts the shield down. It, it's wrecked in, a, in an accident. It's not even caused by the Memphis guy. It's just happens. I think Harry Heck ended a little too abruptly as well. It seemed like after the car chase, there should have been more fight instead of just, oh, I suddenly have a shooting switchblade. Right out of the comics, though. I don't care if it's out of the comics. It wasn't set I, up. I just want to say, first Punisher <laughs> comic I ever read, he used that firing switchblade. I don't care. You have to put it on the wall in the first act for it to work in the third act. You can't just <laughs> create it mid-act. If we'd seen his father say, in addition to modifying all these guns, I got this knife, then I'd go with it. <laughs> <laughs> but... It's not incompetent, it's just a little sloppy, but to say it's one of the worst Marvel films ever, and to put this above Elektra and Man-Thing... Elektra is better than this movie. I oh. will send that postcard to her. <laughs> Elektra is better than this movie. I felt like Elektra, I was having more fun with the finger <laughs> and their absurdity. I like Bumpo and Dave much better than that finger. Oh, Bumpo was the worst. I do have a soft spot for Ben Foster, the one that played Dave. He's a fun presence. I liked him in 310 to Yuma, and he's going to be in Prometheus, and he's done a few other things. I think he's a colorful, eccentric 
actor in the Crispin Glover mode. Uh, I think he tends to play really eccentric weirdos, and he's okay, but I feel like, no, tonally, tonally, this movie, from scene to scene, I feel slapped around. I literally feel like this movie is, I would go back to the word, incompetent. They do not know what they're making here. And one minute, they're like, this will be hilarious, and the next minute, this will be exciting, and the next minute, this will be so dramatic, and they aren't meshing up. I stand by this, that if it's not one of the worst of the Marvel, it's certainly the most perplexing. I'm just weirded out at how all over the map this is. I do agree it's uneven, and I have to say it was probably my second watching that I came to terms with it, and the third watching where I really started to enjoy it. Perhaps it's a little bit of a hostage situation where I'm starting to love my captor, but... Look, I I will give you that the dude with the guitar is the best fight of the second half of the no, movie. No, 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 Only no. because they get considerably worse as we go oh, No, Should we on. get no. to the Russian? I love the yes. Russian. I love the Russian. You love that scene. Yes. You when love they say, that scene? That is so much fun. You put that scene in any movie, and I am loving it. That is a... Oh. I'm going to give you this, Stuart. This is where they blew that self-aware Quentin Tarantino vibe. Because when they say send it in the Russian and they open that door gets kicked open, you know who the Russian should have been? Dolph Lundgren? It should have been Dolph Lundgren. It should, like, that's the one thing about this film that more than the stupid witch doctor origin, oh, they just blew such a great meta moment by having Dolph Lundgren as the Russian in this film. That would have been fun, I'll give you. I probably would have been smiling. Instead, it's what, some wrestler? Yeah. But I love the fight. It's a great fight. Again, I'm adrenalized. But yet I'm laughing at the same time when he hits that grenade like a baseball. Oh. I've never seen that in a film where, like, the, you throw the grenade and you think it's over. When it comes right back, the look on Thomas Jane's face. Oh, I was cracking up. But yet it was a f- exciting fight. They're busting through every wall in the place. I love the Punisher. He has that spring-loaded gun so it shoots out of the desk and he pulls out that trap pulls the gun and the russian just grabs it and like crushes it and the look on the punisher's face he's got this bent gun like it's such a fun action fight scene and it's staged to the opera music with intercut bumpo singing you know you're in trouble when bumpo and dave are the ones who you're hoping will save you but they can't hear the fight yeah i don't even feel equipped i mean go on i don't want to stop you from enjoying what you're seeing but i think this is a spectacularly bad scene like to the point that i wondered if it had been test screen and if anyone had told them what they had done but i'm hearing from you guys that you would have told them it was great best scene of the film it is truly it is one that i go back to i don't know i love the singing scene it's just so weird but there's one scene worse but this one is my second least favorite and the scalding with pasta water that disfigures him is just the climax well Stuart, in the comic they use a very hot pizza oh my god (laughs) i don't know that i would have liked that but this is good and then he, the Punisher throws Bumpo, who's like 700 pounds in the comic, on top of the Russian to suffocate him. Like, I feel the comic has a much better balance talking about it in parts like this for someone that's never read it. You're like, oh, what the hell? Why do you like this? But yeah, it works here. I like this. Okay. Well, let me reframe it. This is nothing about what I wanted when I thought I was going to sit down to watch Punisher 2004. After Dolph Lundgren, I was like, I think that they could really make a good version of this. A little bit more money, a better actor in the lead. They could really do this. And now I realize that they're not trying to do what they were doing 
in the Dolph Lundgren movie at all, that they're making some really weird, bad comedy. Where is the pathos? Where is the tragedy? Where's the vengeance and the anger and the punishment? This is about clowning around. I mean, he might as well just be wearing a Harlequin outfit and a red nose. This guy isn't going to punish anything except me for sitting there and watching it. Well, we've been kind of skipping over his intricate plot, but he has been exacting his punishment. He has been following Livia with a movable fire hydrant. (laughs) All right, you got me. I'm laughing now. (laughs) Why the fuck does he have a fake fire hydrant? Because how else could he steal our car and then park it right back (laughs) at the same place? Where do you go to get one? Did he custom make it after he made the car? eBay? What the hell? Yeah, I, I'll agree with you. Like that, when I first saw this, I'm, he's pulling out this fire hydrant, trying to understand this. Oh, it's just so he could get the same parking space? Like, that's one hell of a contrivance there. You know, in all of the problems with this movie's plot, that wasn't one that I was asking, like, well, how would he be able to bring it back to the space that she left it in? Yeah, he just drives back and it's there. I mean, they know it's a mob leader's parking spot. She goes there every Thursday. You don't mess with it. The director actually said he knew somebody in New York who did this exact thing and never had to search for a parking spot in 10 years. So that's where he got it. Yeah, Right, and he didn't have his whole family executed and wasn't trying to kill anybody with it. Like, my real problem with all of this silliness is it's not like he's just another superhero trying to get revenge. He's not just some goofball comedy. If this had been some character that was about clowning around and having fun and, like, sort of a good guy joker, I could go with it. But this is supposed to be a man grieving for the death of his son and his wife and his parents and everyone he ever knew, and his former life. He is supposed to be burning with seething hatred, and he's doing crap like this. Again, it's the most intricate plot ever, but it really is terrible that he is setting up for Howard to think his wife is cheating on him with his consigliere. Like, this is pretty brutal. It is. What he gets Howard to do. Like, this is so much more brutal than the Punisher walking up and shooting Saint's wife and, you know, his best friend. This is pretty horrific stuff here. What are you talking about? What's so brutal? That he gets the guy to murder his own best friend and his own wife. Like, under false pretense, and then reveals the truth. Like, that's some messed up shit. It is. It is truly retribution beyond just killing. It takes it to a new level, because if this movie was just about Frank trying to kill Howard, I don't think that I would enjoy it as much. So, you are saying that you have no problem with the fact that John Travolta doesn't know that his 20-year-old friend is gay, and that because of earrings in a bed and this parking tickets and a phone bill don't leave out the phone bill there's three pieces of evidence (laughs) and fourth that that howard glass has been spotted repeatedly at the place where her parking tickets were and that he knows that this guy is trying to get him and all of this that he would immediately jump to these conclusions and execute them they call out early that his wife is the one thing he covets over everything else they do set it up That this is the one thing that would make him lose all reason. What made the screenwriter lose all reason and write it this way? That's what I I want. Like, the the whole plot to reveal this, like, yeah, it seems like it's out of a badly written comic. Like, it it is so contrived. I'm going to give you that, Stuart. Contrived's a perfect word. It is so silly, and it doesn't seem like enough. Even with the earring, which is the first solid piece of evidence, it still doesn't seem like enough to really bring him to that murderous stage. You'd think that he'd want even more evidence than what's given. I feel like the 
bloody glove was missing from this whole thing. <laughs> it is OJ-ish, isn't it? I, I gotta say, he treats his wife worse than he actually does Frank. Like, that's what's so weird about this, is that just imply that she might have slept with the best friend, and he's throwing her on the train tracks. And calling her trash. But, like, he knows that the man that's going to bring down his operation and threw $50 million out the window is living in a rundown apartment, and he's like, eh, send a Russian and a guy that plays the guitar from Memphis. That's because he's too afraid to go himself. And again, I say, Howard's somewhat sympathetic. Don't you kind of feel bad for Howard in all of this? Again, his son was killed, and he did want an eye-for-an-eye retribution, and now all of this is happening. He's lost his career, he's lost his family, all because of Frank. Are we talking about Howard or John Travolta? I'm talking about (laughs) Howard. Okay, because I kind of felt bad for John Travolta, because I didn't think he deserved this part. But if we thought Michael Clark Duncan had it bad getting his kneecaps broke by the blind guy, it's really sad to see, without a fight, him getting dragged around the parking lot and, like, with cars exploding. Like, he doesn't even get in a punch. I mean, this guy has been humiliated and is ineffectual. I mean, staring at the guy. Weapons bodyguards all around him and he allows this man to drag him around the parking lot and leave his insignia on all the burning car well they did try to have another you know quick draw shootout and frank won but i don't know why you feel bad for john travolta being dragged into the cars because whoever's being dragged into the cars is a hundred pounds heavier and a foot shorter than john travolta <laughs> well, be that as it may, I know that you love to point out the inconsistencies of the continuity, but for me, it's more central that the character has been written as so ineffectual. Like, this is the lamest fight I've ever seen. To see the showdown be John Travolta walk up to Thomas Jane, him saying, I killed your other son, and then watching John scream as he's dragged around the parking lot. I mean, that's piss. All of the fights here, with the exception of the one against the Russian, kind of leave me cold. And I kind of like the full-on assault. I mean, when he blows up everybody with the bomb and the champagne, and I love how he kills the other son. Of course, the, the other son was the one who shot him, putting the claymore in his hand with the isometric, how long can you hold it? I get some thrills out of that kind of, it's up to him. He could have possibly survived if he'd been stronger. I really feel like this whole movie, it's like setting up the dominoes to watch them fall. So by the time you get to Travolta, everything's fallen. It's all about getting through all those other dominoes Mm -hmm. for the Punisher. And that's the joy. Yeah, I never expected Travolta or Howard Saint to be the tough guy. Like, that was my problem when I first saw the trailers for this movie. I'm like, Travolta is going to be the badass. He's going to be the ultimate fight for the Punisher. I don't buy that. So the the fact that there's all these other obstacles that he has to go through, I don't mind. By the time he gets to Howard Saint, I'm ready for him to just go down. He doesn't have a fighting chance. That's why he had to throw everything else at him. Yeah, I agree. He was never set up as a fighter. The fight was getting to him. And again, this is why Saint doesn't come off completely villainous to me. After they kill Livia, I, I think the real evil person is already dead because... Saint's been a grieving father. I've never seen him shoot anybody. He's no Tony Soprano. He's no Kingpin. I agree with you. So what I'm concerned about is the fact that you think that that makes him better. Like, that makes this story better by making him ineffectual. Why do I want to watch a movie in which a dude comes back from the dead to beat up a guy that was only avenging the son he killed. Again, this is why I think there's some subversive George Bush commentary going on here. 
Wow. Okay. Well, it's too underground for me to dig up. I don't want to even try. But we have a few more scenes. The Punisher's going to kill himself. And of course he doesn't because there could be a sequel. And so he just leaves his new family with a whole bunch of money. I get what they're trying to do. This is the Punisher. He is now disconnected. He had this whole clarification of intent. I hate that whole monologue that's overdubbed. I don't need to know his intent. His intent is to kill bad people. That's what this movie's setting up. But I like that this is to separate him. He is no longer part of the human family. He can no longer associate with anyone. He's gone so far. He's decided to take a mission that we don't understand as mere mortals. To go out and just pick up a gun and just waste everyone that you feel is wrong. He's gone. He can't have this family. He might have memories of his family in his head, but he can't have a family in real life anymore. He does not have that connection. I wish the film built up that thesis stronger. I I feel like I'm projecting a lot of this, but I think it's there. I was totally flabbergasted when Dave allows himself to be tortured and abused because he sees them as a cohesive unit and that he's willing to die for Thomas Jane. I was flabbergasted. They did not establish that at all. Not not even a little. They were neighbors. No, come on. The whole time they were trying to build up that, oh, the Punisher, he's like the cool, popular kid in school. They want to be with him. He's the tough guy that's going to protect him from the bullies. They wanted in. The whole time, they're trying to get Frank to be their daddy. And I love those scenes. They're so uncomfortable. But I think they're supposed to be. And it's like you feel embarrassed for all the characters on the screen. But yet it's great when he's like... I'm thankful for my dad getting out of jail and all this. I see it as established. And I think it's the fact that Dave does that, that allows Frank to not kill himself at the end. No, his wife was the one that was like, comes back in a vision and is like, don't do it. But it was Rebecca Romaine's voice saying good memories are worth living for. So it it was this yeah. family unit that saved Frank's life. Yeah, okay. That is a complete wash. That doesn't even begin to come through the movie that I saw. You know, Stuart, again, going back to this being a Tarantino ripoff, did you get the Tarantino Pulp Fiction vibe? You know, Frank, he's been injured. He rises out of that elevator after the torture scene with Dave, and there's a bodyguard waiting out for him, waiting for Frank to return. And, you know, he picks up the gun. And then he just happens to have one of those old school paper cutters there. So he pulls the blade. Like, I'm like, that's straight out of the pawn shop scene in Pulp Fiction. I loved it, though. It was fun. I, I Very brutal. But yeah, total Tarantino ripoff. I wanted to know who he was sending letters to that he needed to do paper cutting for the stationery. He was scrapbooking. He had to trim down the paper. He's making a family album. That was the thing that got me, is why was that there? Every other implement in the world I would have gone with. But now I know, in a pinch, my paper cutter makes a good makeshift machete. With that torture scene, Dave gets all his piercings ripped out, Bumpo's left completely alone. Would this movie have made better impact, especially on you, Stuart, who you seem to not like the comedic tone, if one or both of them had been killed? It wouldn't have helped me at all. It would have made it felt more erratic. Honestly, any time we were dealing with this family in the apartment, I wanted away from it. I didn't want them dead. I didn't want them alive. I didn't want them here. Now, in the excise subplot, Jacob, I know you said you've seen this. There are scenes that are scattered literally like every 15 minutes like clockwork of the Punisher showing up with weeks and going, hey, where's your boat? Hey, where's your Ferrari? Hey, where's that expensive watch I gave you? And realizing Weeks is the one who sold him out and forcing Weeks to kill himself. He literally holds a gun at Weeks while Weeks has to blow his own brains out. Did you enjoy those scenes, Jacob? 
it makes sense. That is what Frank would do. If there was this friend of his that turned bad, he would still kill him. That is logical for the Punisher. And I don't like the whole weak subplot. I don't think it really adds any to the thing to the film. So I'm just going to say it works within the Punisher logic. I'm glad it's out of the movie, though. I agree. It kills the pacing. I hate this whole subplot. I don't understand what the difference is between shooting someone in the head or holding a gun at them and making them shoot themselves in the head. The same thing as getting you to kill your own best friend and your wife. It's not just about killing the person. It's about punishing them. I mean, what joy is there in just shooting someone if you you could torture him a bit first? I guess this leaves. Jacob Stewart, do you recommend The Punisher? Jacob? This is a conflicting movie. I I understand where you're coming from, Stewart. I don't understand all the bile that you've been spitting out towards it. It's an unbalanced film. Uh, The Punisher is an unbalanced character, so it kind of (laughs) fits that. I do not like the first 30, 40 minutes of this film. The only reason I keep coming back to it now is because I know it comes after that first 40 minutes. And I like the cartoonishness of the violence, the juxtaposition between the humor and some pretty horrific scenes. Like, the violence in this film, it doesn't shy away. It it goes pretty far. It's not what we are used to in some more, well, we'll talk about Punisher Warzone next week. But it goes pretty far with the violence, but then it also has that humor. I like how it plays with that tone. It doesn't get that tone perfect, but I like the action scenes. They're fun, much better than Dolph Punisher. So yeah, this is not the perfect Punisher film. This is not the Punisher film that me as the fan have been waiting for my whole life. I was not completely satisfied when I first saw it, but I keep coming back to it. It's one that I've watched repeatedly. So yes, I recommend Punisher 2004. Stuart? Arnie, I think you're the Punisher. I think (laughs) you keep hearing things that I'm saying and then find ways to have me retract them and suffer even more. Because here I was last week saying, oh, Dolph, he screwed it up. And now I'm begging (laughs) for Dolph Punisher. I'm begging for Daredevil. No, I cannot recommend this movie. It is an absolute mess. It is utterly incoherent. I think I just have polar opposite on Jacob's experience. I was sort of riding it for the first 40 minutes. It's not very exciting, but it's what has to be done to establish the gritty revenge vigilante movie that I think that I'm going to be getting. But then it just goes off on very strange tangents. He's just not the character I thought that he was going to be. And I just feel like I understand the Punisher less having watched this than I did before. I'm totally baffled now. I don't know where this series is going. And all I can say is I'm strongly against it now. This is a very strong not recommend. I don't get either of you on this. (laughs) (laughs) I cannot side with either one of you. Because, Stuart, I cannot comprehend what you saw. I'm wondering, did you see a legal copy of this film? Are you sure you saw the final film? Because what I saw was uneven but it was not incompetent. What I saw did have some abrupt tonal shifts that were a little jarring, but it was not less entertaining than Electra. I've heard you speak for this entire time, but I don't know why you feel this way. Is it just the tonal shifts? Is it the comedy that comes in from the 40 minutes? Is it that you don't like the thought of the Punisher as having levity at times? Well, I didn't think the comedy was funny. In fact, I thought it was very unfunny. And I felt like it was incredibly bad taste to, yes, juxtapose it against a story in which we watch really horrific things befall a man. And then 
have him laugh it off with absurdity. It just, yeah. I, I think you're really oversimplifying his laugh. There's humor. It's not like the Punisher's chuckling as he's, you know, making friends with Spacker Dave and Bumpo. Yeah, he never laughs. The movie laughs. The Punisher isn't the one guffawing. Not literally, but I'm sorry. If your weapon of choice is a popsicle, then yes, you aren't really taking it seriously that your family was executed. See, he uses that popsicle to get a guy to murder his own wife and best friend. I think he's taking it seriously. I agree. It's comedic. We're laughing because, ha-ha, it's a popsicle with a weird torture device. But when you see the end product, it's not ha-ha anymore. You're like, damn, that guy's brutal. Oh, come on now. You guys were not moved by the fact that John Travolta killed his best friend and his wife. We said we were, yes. Yeah, I was. I actually really felt bad for Glass when he's like, you killed me. The guy who played Glass really sold that scene, yes. and I felt bad for him because he didn't know why. I was laughing at that. That was the part of the movie where I was laughing. I, just, I can't believe it. We couldn't be more further apart on this movie. Everything you're saying you like is what I did. It's ridiculous. That was ridiculous. That's not the way that that storyline should have been constructed. That's not how you do it. But while I don't understand, Stuart, why you hate this movie so much, I can't go with Jacob either and say that everything after 40 minutes is all fine and dandy just because it was in a comic, because I haven't read the comic. And I think that a lot of this movie is really stupid. It's really stupid. It's, we can't just kill Frank's wife and kid. We're going to kill his extended family. We're going to kill his in-laws. We're going to kill everyone he's ever had a lineage with. It's crazy stupid. And then a witch doctor is going to bring him back to life. Ridiculously bad. I'm agreeing with you here, Arnie. <laughs> and then he hits people in the face with a frying pan. And he's going to sit down to dinner. And he has a knife that comes out of nowhere. All of this. And his entire revenge plot. His entire revenge plot is fucking ludicrous. But while the logical part of my brain is going, wow, this is... It took me back to Lecter. It's almost a Lecturian plot to get revenge on Howard Saint. The way Hannibal Lecter could move all the pieces to escape in Silence of the Lambs is kind of what the Punisher's doing here. But you just don't ever get the thought that the Punisher's as smart because it's being played by Thomas Jane, not Anthony Hopkins or any other Brit. But while I realize... It's fucking stupid. I also realize I'm having a lot of fun. The action scenes, many of them work for me. The killing of the family works for me. The fight with the Russian is a lot of fun action. The car chases, both of them, really good. And I like the big shootout at the end. What big shootout at the when end? When the Punisher goes in and blows everybody up. Who got shot? All the bodyguards? Yeah, there were tons of bodyguards. Oh, the bodyguards. Yeah. All right, the bodyguards. All right. Which was... Howard Saint's weapon. Howard Saint doesn't wield a weapon. He hires people to wield weapons. That's his power. I'm going to give this a soft recommend because I do think that it's dumb, but it's fun. So it is the epitome of dumb fun, and that's a recommend. Wow. Yeah, I, this one, we're really on polar opposites. I'm wondering, guys, if this were not Punisher, if this were The Crow, for example, and another what, sequel to one of those movies, and you weren't as connected with the character, Jacob in particular, I'm curious to know, do you think you would be giving it as much of a pass as you are? Because, I mean, the grilling that you've given some other movies, and to allow this movie to skate by on recommends, it's shocking to me. I'm shocked that you guys recommended this. If 
the Crow Six or whatever <laughs> hypothetical movie you're talking about has a line where they say, "Send in the Russian," and a huge man in a little sailor suit walks in. <laughs> yes, yes, and you got a country singer serenading you. Yet, yeah, like I love that stuff. It's just the absurdity of it is fun. Yes, I would go with it. Me, I don't care that this movie is the punisher i don't know that i would have seen it the crow i've only seen the first crow but yeah i think that any movie if it was some dumb action flick that i saw and caught again on fx and once i came to terms with the unevenness yeah i feel very much about this as i do about daredevil is that initially i didn't think it was as good as i'd eventually come around to it on yeah i have to learn to love its flaws but yeah i I'm not a Punisher fan. I've never played a Punisher video game in my life. Of all the Marvel heroes, Punisher's pretty low on my rungs, and I'm giving this film a recommend. Okay, well, I'm puzzled and concerned that there is still more to go now. I, I have no idea. <laughs> is this a sequel we're heading towards? Is this a reboot? Speaking of puzzles, we're going to get Jigsaw in the next film. Hello, Punisher. We're going to play a game. No, 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 no. Wrong. No, this is not the Saw Punisher crossover. <laughs> Wrong Jigsaw there. <laughs> but it is a Lionsgate film, so it could have been. Punisher, Punisher, Punish, really Punisher, 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 Punisher. <laughs> the next one, here's what's funny about it is it was intended to be a pure sequel. Thomas Jane was on board. The director was back. They cut the budget further and the director walked, but Thomas Jane was still on board. And then the ever-present creative differences had them have to do a last-minute recast for The Punisher. And then when they recast The Punisher, all of a sudden they started calling it a reboot. But it was the same script that was supposed to be the sequel. So okay, they call it a reboot. To me, it's Punisher 2. But it's, it's a very much standalone story. It's kind of, you know, one of those... Like the Incredible Hulk is to the Hulk in some ways, where it's, we're not going to do an origin story again, we're not going to reboot it like that, but here's another movie that features this character, take the ties you want to. There's certainly no flashbacks to Samantha Mathis, unfortunately. For you. How about some flashbacks to Dolph? Because I'm really ready to go now, like, bring him back, I'm okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry Dolph for what I said, sorry about that. Well, we will be back next week with The Punisher Warzone. Stuart Jacob, thank you for going down to Tampa with me. And until next time, the guilty will be punished. I still talk to God sometimes. I ask him if what I'm doing is right or wrong. I'm still waiting for an answer. Until I get one, I'll be out here, waiting, watching. The guilty will be punished. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Now Playing Punisher Movie Retrospective Series. That was fun. Now, let's go kill Castle in this miserable hole. Part of our Marvel Comic Movie Series. Turn the lights off when you leave. Don't punish yourself. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another Punisher film. There's a limit to revenge. Well, I guess I haven't reached mine. And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other Marvel Comics films, such as Howard the Duck, Man-Thing, Daredevil, Elektra, The Blade series, The Fantastic Four series, X-Men, and many more. 
we're gonna have ourselves a little bit of fun with this. Plus, we also have reviews of non-comic series, such as Star Trek, Terminator, Predator, A Nightmare on Elm Street, and others. Vaya con Dios, Castle. Go with God. God's gonna sit this one out. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums, where you can discuss the Marvel movie films with other listeners. No background checks, no problems. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are at NowPlayingPodcast.com. But the location's not the big story. Who'll be there is... Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. He's asking for help, so let's help him. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. What the fuck are you waiting for, Christmas? You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy Now Playing t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and much more. Oh God, now I've got brains splattered all over me. The link to our Cafe Press store is available on our homepage. You don't get to shoot my husband in cold blood and then stuff at the ATM. Now Playing's Punisher Retrospective series is edited by Arnie. He hasn't slept all week. How do you know? Because I haven't slept all week. Credits read by Brock. The tongue stretches further than most people think. Ask your man how he's going to talk that shit when I pull it from his mouth. Now Playing is not affiliated with New World Pictures, Artisan Entertainment, or Lionsgate. The Marvel characters and all of the Marvel Universe contains is the intellectual property and trademark of Marvel Publishing Incorporated, and no infringement is intended. I want a lawyer. You'll get your fucking lawyer. But no lawyer's gonna get you out of this one. You ugly piece of shit. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. This was a hard one. This was the last one. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2011, all rights reserved. You're leaving. I have work to do. Read your newspaper every day, you understand. Which section? Obituaries. Oh, for fuck's sake. Hosted by Frank Sr., played by, hey, from Jaws, Roy Scheider. Yay! The only positive Stuart will give this whole hour. (laughs) Maybe a couple. Oh, for fuck's sake. When I expressed that last week, you know, it was said something to the effect, is it it enough to... No, actually, that wasn't said. That was something I thought when I watched this movie. (laughs) Never mind. (laughs) Oh, for fuck's sake. Woman, she wants him to retire and spend time with her, not out busting drug lords. Did you just pop a beer? Is that yeah, how you're gonna you deal? Just crack oh, I, thought, I thought that was you, Stuart. <laughs> yeah, That's how you're... Generation X, callback. <laughs> I thought that was you, Stuart. That's how you're gonna get through the rest of this. No, God, I, no, God knows. I mean, I, if I had any beer in this house, it would be consumed. <laughs> <laughs> is that a Colt 45? What are you doing? Speaking of a. Oh, for fuck's sake. Hey, 50 Cent has been shot 19 times and he's still alive. Nine times. And yeah. <laughs> According to his PR people, it makes a good story yeah, to sell records. I, yeah. Oh, for fuck's sake. When he goes in this direction, I don't know where it's going. But I I love that line so much. I'm I'm ready. Okay, if we're gonna go into cheesy bad pun, I mean this is the Punisher. Maybe they're taking that literally. <laughs> pun is sure. Uh, 
Oh, for fuck's sake. Spacker Dave. Spacker Dave. Guy, yeah, the guy with... Is he really? Yeah, same yeah. guy. I didn't realize it I under all those piercings. Like at all. No. Yeah. That was, that was Angel? Wow. I does not look like him at all. The, I guess it's the piercings? Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs>